Have your Bibles. Let's, um, we're going to be in Second, First Kings 22, and then turning the page to Second Kings 1. But if I may, if you're able to put your finger there, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 9 to begin. For those of you who are new to City Light or visiting today for the first time, welcome. Um, this has been a season that we've been following Elijah, and we'll be following Elisha more in these coming weeks um, through the book of First and Second Kings. This is a, a time in human history that was almost 2,800, 2,900 years ago. But God, who does not change, who revealed himself then, is now working in us, and his word is powerful. Luke chapter 9, I want to begin with today. And we'll end in Luke chapter 12 today. But Luke chapter 9, if you're there with me, and if you're not, it'll be on the screen. In verse 51, this is God's word. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent his messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Why do I begin here today? We've read this before, and maybe we've been so conditioned it doesn't shock you anymore. Here are James and John, the sons of Zebedee, in the family business of fishing, working the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus says, come follow me, and along with Peter and others, there's going to be fishers of men. Do you remember the nickname that Jesus gave these two brothers? The Sons of Thunder. How do you get that nickname? Because they were, now we think of John as being this beloved children, let's love one another. He wrote that late in his life. But here following Jesus, they were high-spirited, impetuous Galileans whose zeal was undisciplined and sometimes misdirected. They come to a Samaritan town which doesn't receive Jesus and they're ready to call down fire from heaven. Do you remember this? Where does that idea come from? Who just thinks, I'm going to call down fire from heaven on you? Where does that come from? Jesus rebukes them and they go on to another village. What caused these disciples to even think of such a thing? To call down fire from heaven. And so please hold that as we now go back to kings. To these sons of thunders ready to call down fire. We're going to begin in 1 Kings 22. Earlier in this chapter, Ahab has died. And now his son begins to reign. One of his sons. We'll begin in verse 51 of this chapter, 1 Kings 22. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel 
in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, walked in the ways of his father, in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. This sounds like 1 Kings 16, as one administration comes into the next. The writer of Kings, in this next chapter, the first chapter of 2 Kings, will recount one episode from this man's life. And it'll just be a few sentences. It'll be a chapter there for that episode. But here, before we get to that episode, he gives a few sentences to summarize his life. And it reads again like an obituary. Do you ever read the obituaries? You can read a newspaper. I mean, do you ever link over to a local newspaper online and read an obituary? Probably not as a common practice, though, though I've heard that um, older folks do. We'll do it when a loved one or an acquaintance or someone we've heard about. And we will see how their life is summarized in a few sentences. What do you want your obituary to say? And the question is, are we living in such a way that it would be an honest assessment? Here for this obituary, it gives us the family. He's the son of Ahab, the son of Jezebel. Ahab's now been killed in the battle of Ramoth-Gilead. Just a few verses prior, Jezebel will not be she will not die until 2 Kings 9. That's pretty gruesome. Um, we'll get there later. His work, here's what he did for a living. He was king over Israel in Samaria for two years. And it was concurrent with Jehoshaphat, who's in the south, in Judah. So Jehoshaphat is a, actually a good king in the south, in Judah. But the writer of Chronicles tells us that they then collaborate, they partner together to build ships together. They want to get ships out onto the sea. But Jehoshaphat, even though he's a good king, should have never partnered with Ahaziah. So God wrecked all the ships. But look at his life. How is his life Summarized here, he worshiped Baal and did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, if you've been to funerals, usually in the eulogizing of a life, we will diminish the, the negative aspects or minimize those and will accentuate the positive aspects of a life. We want to honor a person's life. And in Ahaziah's life, imagine just in a life lived, there's times of happiness. Imagine just the common grace celebrations that he lived. But how is his life summarized here in the Bible? evil. He walked in the way of his parents who worshiped Baal and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Like father, like son. First Kings 16, and Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. It's the very same phrases that Described Ahab, now describe Ahaziah. A few questions I hope maybe are coming to your mind as we continue to see generation after generation here in the kings. 
A personal question. Are we destined to just become like our parents? And some of you who are parenting, how does a person, how, do, how is a person raised to be godly or what makes a person to be raised to be evil? I mean, if it's just from Omri to Ahab to Ahaziah, if it's the same story, are we just destined to just, is there a fatalism here? Below these application questions, we must ask a theological question, and that is, what is the nature of sin? What is the way of salvation? What is the nature of sin? We are all sinful. I hope that's not a shock to you. I hope that you don't, we can discuss it, but we all have sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. Death spread to all men because one, because we've all sinned. And if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourselves and the truth is not in you. So what is the nature of sin? Well, first of all, we're all sinners. Well, how are we all sinners? What's inherited? A sinful nature is inherited. We are not born as a blank slate. We're not born as like good, only then to go bad. We don't just a blank slate and then add whatever. We're not born good and then just go. We are born sinful. Not only born sinful, we're conceived in sin. We are totally depraved. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David confesses in Psalm 51. Jesus tells Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Sinful nature is inherited. We're all sinners. We're born this way. We're, we have a nature of sin. But also sinful ways are learned. From our earliest days, we are learning from others. We are imitating others, those who are closest to us. And in the nature-nurture debate, this is the nurture side of it, that ways are learned. So family is primary in our upbringing, in our nurturing, for good or for bad. And so we do learn sinful ways from those closest to us. Some of you young parents, you realize this when your toddler uses the same harsh words you say. And you're like, oh, somebody's listening. Parents of teenagers, you realize this when your teenager indulges in your own worldliness. You realize this as an adult when you're, you sin and then you get pricked in your spirit by the Holy Spirit. And you're like, I was just like my dad there. I was just like my mom. There is such a thing as generational sin. Because not only do we have a sinful nature that we keep passing on through the generations, we pass ways through through imitation and learning. A few quick examples. Abraham lied. I mean, to protect his wife, he had to just bend the truth. He was lying to protect his wife, Sarah. Isaac did the same thing with Rebecca. Then comes Jacob, and he's a deceiver. He's going to lie to get that birthright. David, sexual immorality, Bathsheba. And Solomon tops that. 
Generational sin. Do you perceive sin patterns in your life? You go to the doctor and they'll say, what's your medical history? And you're doing your best and trying to remember who had what in your family so they can chart it. But have you ever done a spiritual history of your family? That would be a worthy exercise for you to do. What sin patterns do I perceive by the Holy Spirit giving me understanding as I just see my, my family tree? What sin patterns do I see in my life? And please don't put pride on thinking that you won't have proclivities there. How much more should we understand our spiritual history of our family? And so when you see these sin patterns, and I'm sorry, I, I, I broke it last week. I didn't have it. But for me, I'm just there on a bridge in a cave in Lord of the Rings and Moria. And Gandalf is fighting. This wizard is, is per, facing this demon that's per, pursuing them, this Balrog. And he says, go back to the shadow. You shall not pass. And he just, and this is whenever I think about sin patterns in our lives. It's just, you've got to get to the point you hate sin. And you don't want it to pass on to the next generation. You shall not pass. And so by the power of prayer, we confess our own sin and we ask God, please deliver us even from generational sin. We are all sinful. Sinful nature is inherited. Sinful ways are learned. Ahaziah was a sinner from birth, but he also learned the evil ways of his father and mother worshiping Baal. So are we, is this fatalism? Are we destined just to become like our parents? Is our environment what determines who we become? No. There are godly parents who have children who swerve and, and just reject the faith. There are worthless parents who have children who come and are just godly. And and you're trying to like, you want to make it a formula to solve. We want to make it a science. Well, if I input A, how do I get B? As if it's something we can do. Actually, right here, right down here, there's godly parents and other brothers and sisters who pray for the prodigals in our families. And that prayer has persisted for months. And we're already seeing an answer to that prayer. Because godly parents can have children who go and want to like be prodigals into the world. So parents, let me quit being anxious. Quit being obnoxious. Thinking that your perfect parenting will save your children and your youth. If, if we put an A and think we're going to get B, we're going to do it in our flesh. Folks, quit pressuring yourselves, thinking that your just right words and deeds will save your unbelieving friends. I say that, but we are to seriously take the call of disciple making, and we are to labor in prayer and to be intentional in conversations and pouring out of love. We're, we're not to be pacifists in this degree. We are to labor in love and evangelism, disciple-making. But we do this praying and trusting that it's God's saving power. Jesus saves, not us. So what then is this way of salvation? We're born of flesh. 
With Nicodemus, we must be born again of God's Spirit. Ephesians 2, we're dead in sin. God must make us alive together in Christ Jesus. We are hostile to God, but God must do the work of reconciling us to himself to make peace. We are lost, but Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. We are enemies of God, but Jesus comes and calls us friends. We are children of wrath, but in Christ Jesus, we are called beloved children. What is the way of salvation? It's been this way always, by grace, through faith in God. Now, we on this side of the cross realize it's through faith in Christ Jesus, who is God's Messiah. But even before the cross, it was through faith into God's saving promise. We cannot save ourselves. Others cannot save us. You cannot save others. God must save us, and this is the good news of salvation. We are all sinners. We rightfully deserve the wrath of God. Eternal condemnation in hell. But this is the way of salvation that God so loves us that he sent his beloved son to us, among us. This is God in the flesh, Jesus, full of grace and truth. He never sinned and yet went to the cross. He set his face to Jerusalem, we just heard in Luke 9, because it, he came to die, to stand in our place, to die for our sin. He's not a sinner, but he died the death of sinners, forsaken us by God. And on the third day, just as he said, he arose from the dead in victory over death, over the grave. And he's now ascended in heaven, in flesh, coming back again one day to make all things new. Do you believe this good news of salvation? I, as a preacher, I, I want to, well, my right words or enough gestures and stuff will get you to get it. All I can do is just proclaim it. That is faithfulness for me. That's faithfulness for you to proclaim it to others. But it's God who must save us. And if God is working on your heart and just saying, where you're going is straight to hell apart from my beloved son, believe in me, hear that. That is the Holy Spirit calling you to faith. Do not resist him today. We cannot save ourselves. And don't blame others for our sin either. Ahaziah walked in the way of his father Ahab and his mother Jezebel. They sinned by raising him to serve Baal, and he sinned by worshiping Baal. And how is his life summed up? He did evil in the sight of the Lord and provoked the Lord to anger. There's a lot of just common graces, celebrations, days of happiness that we'll share. But at the end of our days, what will be said of our life? Turn with me to 2 Kings 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise and go and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore go and thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. We'll pause there. God opposes the proud 
and judges the wicked. Look at the circumstances of Ahaziah's life. Politically, in this verse, Moab is rebelling against Israel. Economically, God has wrecked his commercial enterprise with Jehoshaphat for shipbuilding. Personally, he now fell through a window, through some lattice, and is so injured that it's life-threatening. At this point, cry out to Yahweh. Cry out to the Lord God of Israel. Many people will cry out to God when suffering and loss come to their way. Many cry out to God. Fewer cry out for God. Circumstances are such that in suffering and loss, these will often drive us to pray to God. The question is, when do we want to cry out for God? He's not crying out to God. He's consulting the devil. He's, not, he's inquiring of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether he'll recover from the injury. Beelzebub, which ends in a B, actually means Lord of the Flies. And it's probably a deliberate um, Hebrew corruption. Probably the scribe is just wanting to like throw some shade at this God. Um, because the, the correct word is Beelzebul with an L. But that, whoever's just scribing this out is like, I'm going to throw a B in there. I'd like to throw shade at this God. You're just nothing but a Lord of the flies. Beelzebul means Prince Baal or Glorious Baal. There may just be a little sense of scribal humor here. Luke eleven fourteen. You don't have to turn there, but listen. We're since I'm back and forth in Luke. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute, and when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marvelled. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others said to test him, keep seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to him, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? They're saying he's casting out demons by Beelzebul, and he says Satan can't be divided by itself, divided in on himself. So what did Jesus just do? He just equated Beelzebul and Satan. Ahaziah is consulting the devil. And Satan, you're nothing but Lord of the Flies. Do you believe that Satan and demons are real? I've quoted this before. It's a good prelude into the screw tape letters. The C.S. Lewis writes, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors. They hail both a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So a materialist is kind of what we've been most of the time in our here recent history. You know, we came from the Enlightenment, and everything is natural, and we're all humanist. And so it's all naturalism, humanism. There's nothing beyond what we can see, feel, hear, and touch. Nothing, if we can't put it under scientific method, it's not real. And so that's the, nat, the materialist. This is the secular naturalism that traces back to the Enlightenment. 
And you would think that that would be our primary, that would be my primary audience here to have to convince. Like there's something beyond. But actually, this has been a shift in our culture. And kids are like playing with Ouija boards back in my day. But now there's like TikTok witches. Like witches who are casting spell on TikTok these days. The occult and witchcraft is on the rise in our land. And in major publications, The Atlantic, New York Times, they're, they're noticing. There was a video put out by the UCLA uh, state-sponsored university in California where a woman, Patrice Colors, did a prayer for the runner. And it was a lament for um, those who've been um, killed in police brutality or in, in police in interactions. But in this, she is like calling out Ashe, Ashe, which is, according to, to her followers, this is the power of the Nigerian god Adumare, which gives its adherents the power to curse, hex, and destroy enemies. Please don't just put that under the culture umbrella of higher education. This is art. I mean, it's very artful, but it's demonic. State sponsored. State sponsored. There shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. I would ask you as you think through your spiritual history of yourself and your family, have you curiously dabbled in other religions or even new age spiritualities? Did you grow up in a home that did? I would ask you to pray through that. Have others pray with you. And if this is something that fascinates you and you give yourself to repent and turn to the one true living God. Here Ahaziah is sending messengers to inquire of Beelzebub. The angel of the Lord sends Elijah to confront him. Ahaziah is calling on the devil, and the Lord is sending him the prophet. This is the word of the Lord. You shall not recover, you shall die. Now, I will not continue to pause and give commentary here. Let's read the rest of this chapter together. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us, and he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. Ahaziah said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? Well, they answered him, He wore a garment of hair, and a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went to Elijah and was sitting, who was sitting at the top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and the fifty. Again, the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. 
And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of the fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him and do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from this bed to which you've gone up. You shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jeroboam came king in his place in the second year of Jeroboam. Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles or the kings of Israel? There is only one episode of Ahaziah's life beyond the mention in Chronicles about a partnership to shipbuild. Only one real fleshed out episode in his life. And this entire episode is, how did he respond to God's word? He sends his messengers to go inquire of Beelzebub. Elijah sends the word back. He then sends a first 50 to go. They get consumed by fire. He sends a second 50. They get consumed by fire. The third 50 come, and that captain prostrates himself and becomes humble before the prophet of the Lord and is not consumed, and Ahaziah dies from his injury. A short life. He'd only reigned two years. What is a life? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Ahaziah was fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Ahaziah was given opportunity to be a king of God's people. There's many episodes in his life that could have been recounted, but this is the one by the Spirit that we are told to give attention to. His life was evil. And in this one episode, he rejected God's word. The defining moments in our life are whether we receive or reject God's word. The defining moments, the things that will cause us to make the trajectory of our life and that will then sum up for our life is how we either receive or reject God's word. Is this moment, even now for some of you, are there hearts hardening towards God in these moments? Or are we being softened by God's word to see who he is and what he has done? He not only rejected God's word, but he persisted in evil and led others to do the same. He 
knows this is Elijah the Tishbite? He must have heard what Elijah did on Carmel. Calling down fire after a day's contest with hundreds of prophets of Baal. Yet he persisted to send battalions of 50 after Elijah. Do you feel his heart hardened? The next wave comes. They're consumed by fire. The next wave, they're consumed. Ahaziah persisted in sin, thinking that this was a battle of wills. And because he did not relent, a hundred men died that day. Do you see that our sin, your sin is not some private enterprise. You can just go tuck away and go sin and not have impact on others and consequence on others. Your sin is hardening your heart. The more we give in to our sin, our hearts will harden. It'll change who we are. And then that will change the environment all around us in our relationships. Our sin is affecting others more than we realize. And repeated sin hardens the heart. Do not think that we can just tame our sin. Domesticate your sin, your flesh. Persisting in sin will harden our hearts and it will grieve the Holy Spirit. And we won't even know what the voice of God is anymore. We won't know the revelation of God anymore in his word. Do we think that the force of our will will prevail against the Lord? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's repeated across the Psalms and into the book of Hebrews. Look at the pride of life. Ahaziah is proud, but look at these first two captains. The first one says, come down. The second one comes, come down quickly. To the man of God. He's already been on a mount and is called down fire, and yet he's on this hill, and you're bossing him around? These men were arrogant and demanding against the prophet of the Lord, and the fire of God consumed them. Repeated sin hardens the heart, and pride hardens the heart. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is not from the Father, but from the world. Who's the person who's not prideful here? <laughs> that third captain. That will fear the Lord in him. And do you see that how his humility, how his posture before God's messenger saved lives, saved his battalion of 50, your humility is impacting others more than you realize. And this is the only episode of Ahaziah's life that's recorded in Scripture, how he responded to God's Word. He didn't humble himself when having the opportunity. Even last week, we saw Ahab finally humble himself at God's Word. But not so his son this week. There are so many defining episodes, many memories you have. But your life will be summed up on how you either receive or reject the Lord God. And how that comes through, you receive or reject his word. 
Today, do you hear the word of God's judgment? Please do. Our God is holy. He's a consuming fire, Hebrew says. He is just. He is, he does not, he's not going to make friends with sin. That's why he sent his son to die for sin, that we can then be made new to be reconciled and become his friends. That is God's judgment. But his love is the word of salvation to us. That Christ died in our place. That God so loves us. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This happened in Samaria where Ahaziah was king over Israel. Where was Jesus and his disciples in the town that was, didn't receive him? Samaria. And here are these two brothers, these sons of thunder, remembering the example of Elijah and so ready to call down fire. These disciples were following a man whom John the Baptist, with the garment of hair and a belt of leather, said that there is coming a one greater than me, after me, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John the Baptist was like Elijah and wearing a garment of hair and a belt of leather. And people thought, who is this man? Is this Elijah come back? But he's now pointing back to the greater one after him, of whose sandals he cannot even tie. So that even when we get to this pivot point in Jesus' ministry, he's going to ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? Elijah? One of the other prophets? I know, but who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter says. But what did Jesus do when James and John, these sons of thunder, were ready to call down fire? He rebuked them, and they went on to another village. See, Jesus came to bring salvation and to save us from the fire. We are all sinful. Sinful nature is inherited. Sinful ways are learned. And we deserve the fire of God's judgment in eternal, never-ending hell. But Jesus came to save us, to snatch us from the flames by dying for that sin. We could, he didn't know sin, but he became sin that we may become the righteousness of God. So on that day, sons of thunder, you're not calling down fire. I, there's more work to be done here. But that greater Elijah, you know what he's going to do on the great day coming? The greatest of all prophets? When Jesus comes back, our works are going to be tested by fire. And if anything was unto the praise of God and glory, by, that is what will endure. You know what will happen on that great day? Fire is coming for all of creation to renew it. Do you know what's going to happen on that great day? The wicked are going to be cast into the fires of eternal hell. The demons, Satan and his demons, and those who've not loved the Lord. But in these days, our job is not to cast down fire on people. But I do know this, that 
Jesus' word, the word of the gospel, the word of who Jesus is, is coming down and casting fires of division in our day. And Luke 12 tells us this. Jesus said in Luke 12, chapter 49, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would it that it was already kindled? I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, rather division. And his words continue on to say how there would be division even in families. He's the prince of peace, but he comes and reveals in such a way that our responses, people's responses to them, there's a fire of division. You either love him, receive him, follow him, or you ignore him, disregard him, dismiss him, hate him, oppose him. There's a, there's a fire of division there. We, it's not our place to go call down fire on people because they don't receive him. But we should not be surprised when there are such divisions. And that, how much more so should we labor in prayer and submit ourselves in love to one another to share the good news of the gospel, but also know that those divisions will even bring persecution back upon us, ridicule back upon us. Jesus comes with the fire of God's word. And the defining moments in our life are the ones in which we either receive it or reject it. So my question is really, how do you receive the word of God today? Do you know the word of God even incarnate in Christ Jesus, the eternal word made flesh and dwelting among us? Do you receive him today or is your heart hardening? I wish I had just the right words and gestures and tone and such to save you. But all we do is proclaim this glorious word and this word is the power of salvation. This gospel is the power of salvation. And God's Spirit is working to save. And I pray especially in this day when there seems to be such a division. of Let's not make the mere divisions just things of this world. If anything's going to divide us, if anything's going to divide it, let it be because we either love Jesus or don't. We're not, let's quit playing church. We love him. We're going to follow him. We're going to pray the Spirit has fire into our bones for life in this day or we won't let that be what divides us let that be the firing there and then let us then with this fire this burning heart this burning heart that loves Jesus then go out and lay down our lives for others even as he did for us let's pray